All right, as you turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Last Sunday, as we've journeyed through 1 Corinthians this entire year, we came to verse 12, chapter 12, the first of three chapters that deal with the issue mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 12 of spiritual gifts. As Paul has moved through this letter, he's simply been just dealing with issue after issue that was causing this church to be full of disunity and discord, division. And um, if we heard about these issues like in a local church in the Monroe area, we would be uh, probably rightfully justified in thinking, is that really a church? I mean, the stuff that is happening among their members, it's just crazy sounding. But Paul, being the primary church planter missionary who went to Corinth around 50 AD to proclaim the gospel, to see people come alive in Christ, to make disciples who make, made disciples that saw the church born, Paul, of anyone, knew that this was a church, despite all the issues that they had faced. And Paul had moved on, and he was in another city. They had sent letters. They had sent people to visit him with these lists of issues that they were wrestling with, and he began to write back. And that's what we have in 1 Corinthians. The city of Corinth, a prominent Greco-Roman city situated on the strategic trade route in the, in the Roman world, full of a variety of people, uh, social class, economic class, uh, educational class, different ethnicities that had traveled back and forth through the city to uh, make a living. Very profitable city uh, in the Greco-Roman world. And Paul had been there for 18 months prior and knew these people well. And as he receives these letters, he's finding out that a lot of these issues that they were having were centered around the basic idea that the pagan culture they had come out of was still in them. Instead of the gospel saturating the church and the lives of the people, it was a lot of the paganism had continued to saturate their life. And through all of these issues, you can go back and say, well, that's where they got that out of the pagan culture, and that's where they got that out of the pagan culture. And uh, they hadn't left that behind to pursue Jesus alone as one people. And we've seen factions that were centered around which leaders were considered more important and public shameful sexual immorality in the church and members suing one another, unhealthy marriages and singleness, gender distinctions that were being eroded, members not loving and serving one another, participating in the worship of pagan gods, the rich being unloving toward the poor, wives being unloving toward their husbands. It was so bad that we found out in chapter 11 that people were getting sick and dying for their public unrepentant sins. And now we come to this issue of spiritual gifts. Now, what we won't find out into chapter 14 is the problem Paul is addressing. Essentially, spiritual gifts that seem more spectacular, namely speaking in tongues, were being elevated, especially among the social elite and the wealthier, as more significant signs of spiritual blessing and maturity. And the church was dividing in these two groups. Those who had this ability were smug and arrogant toward those who didn't, and those who didn't have this ability were defensive and envious of those who did. It was just another way that this church was being torn apart from the inside out. So how does Paul deal with this problem? Well, before he actually addresses the specific problem, he's laying a foundation. We saw last week he began by laying a foundation for what spiritual gifts were and how the validity of spiritual gifts are to be examined. So if it is a gift from the Holy Spirit, Jesus will be seen, and Jesus as Lord will be evidenced among those who are His and the practice of their gifts. If it is from another spirit, Jesus will be accursed. Jesus will be relegated to non-essential. And if the spiritual gifts are given by our triune God, they were given for the people in order to, to manifest the spirit and power of God through his people for Jesus to be seen, for the gospel to go forward, for God to be glorified. 
We saw a list of gifts in verses 8 through 10, one of five such lists in the New Testament of spiritual gifts, not an exhaustive list, but just to give an example of the diversity of gifts that God gives his church. And now Paul follows that introduction with the the most thorough and beautiful and clear pictures of what it means to be the church that we find in all of Scripture. And we'll see how God has enabled the church to reflect his unity and diversity that's found within the triune Godhead. And for the church to be healthy and vibrant and thriving, it absolutely, absolutely requires, non-negotiable, every single member of that local church operating and functioning within their spiritual giftedness. Let's begin in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary... The parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. Father, we are overwhelmed of how much you love us to do this work in us, through us, for us to experience your life as the body of Christ and for you to continually love us that we still have the word and we still have the spirit working and moving and acting and we're still experiencing life as your people. We thank you that these things are true and now help us Help us understand who we are. Empower our obedience. Empower our repentance, our faith, our trust in you. Maybe for some today, the day, today would be the day of their salvation. Call them to repent and believe in Jesus and come alive in him. Do all these things for the glory of one alone, you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, verse 12 has a surprising ending. If we weren't so familiar with the passage, you would think verse 12 would read something like this. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with the church. But Paul says, so it is with Christ. 
And what we find from this first section, verses 12 and 13, Christ has made every single one of us individually one body, the body of Christ. He uses a metaphor that every single person in here who has ever lived is familiar with, the human body. We know how God has created us. We have one body with 206 bones and 78 organs and 12 systems and around 37.2 trillion cells, give or take a few trillion. And all of those parts work together to make one you and one me. And so it is with Christ. What? He's going to elaborate on this for the rest of the chapter. But before we dig into the details, notice how Paul spells out the how in verse 13. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. Now, what this passage is not referring to, the passage is not referring to an experience with the Holy Spirit post-conversion in which you're baptized with the Holy Spirit as evidence in speaking in tongues. Commonly taught in many churches today is something that Christians not only should seek, but they should experience if they want it bad enough, if they love God enough, if they're faithful enough, if they try hard enough. And unfortunately, what happens in those churches that practice that doctrine is the very same thing that Paul was writing to correct in Corinth, a two-class system. Those who have the gift and are smug and arrogant to those who don't have the gift, generally speaking, certainly not true of every person in those churches. And Paul is not referring to that when he says that because notice what he says in verse 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Paul is referring to what happens to us at conversion. We are baptized into the Spirit through Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit. We come alive in Christ. The Holy Spirit moves in and makes us a new creation. And so we are immersed into this life in the Spirit that happens for every single person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, for every single person who's born again. Nobody misses out on this. Nobody is deficient. Everybody gets in on this. God moves in when you come alive in Christ. And that's true of every single believer, no matter their age. Now, this passage is also not saying anything about the Eucharist as those like Luther tried to use this passage to justify and experiencing Christ in the Eucharist. The language of drinking of one spirit is very much what Jesus spoke of in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. We would drink of the Spirit. We're immersed in the Spirit. Essentially, Paul is doing what Paul often does, saying the same thing in two different ways. Being immersed in the life of the Spirit, being overwhelmed in a flood of the living water, the well that is the Spirit of God, that is who we are. And all of us, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, have had and are experiencing that. That's what makes us one body, one people. And this spiritual reality that we see pictured in water baptism is so transformative, it changes the essence of who we are. It changes our very identity, so much so that our ultimate identity becomes dearly loved son and daughter of our Father in heaven, that nothing can change. Our identity becomes brother of Christ, sister of Christ, co-heir with Christ, holy, blameless, and redeemed. 
And this identity actually supersedes all the other ways that we tend to divide ourselves outside of the church. You see that in verse 13. Jew, Greek, slave, free. Ethnicities, old religious identities, class and economic divisions. All of those we usually allow to divide us outside the church. We still are. You don't lose those things when you come in the church. Male and female is another common barrier Paul talks about in Galatians 3. You're still a man, you're still a woman. Ethnically, you're still a Jew, you're still a Greek. You may have still been a slave, you may still have been free. But because we are one in Christ, it becomes a diversity that we can enjoy and celebrate, that we can exist in. The ultimate picture of this is the eternal state, of course, in Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every nation, tribe, people, and language as one, worshiping Jesus. Notice it is still every nation, tribe, language, and people. They haven't lost their distinctiveness. They haven't lost what made them individuals, but as one, worshiping Jesus. And the more that we experience that now, what God has intended his church to be, the more the surrounding culture sits up and takes notice. Why are those people so in love with each other? Why are those people so one, united? They're so different. What would make that diverse group of people so different? And we would tell them, it's Jesus. It's the gospel. Only God can do this. Which is why we'll never be satisfied with a homogenous church membership, but we'll continually strive for diversity. Diversity in age, diversity in ethnicity, diversity in education, social standing, economic class, social class, political, geographical. However diverse God will make us that will make our surrounding city sit up and say, what is that? And we'll say, it's the church. It's what Jesus has created and intended for us to be. Because what we see in the next section, diversity is necessary. It's not optional. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is... God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, many parts, yet one body. Now, in this section and the next, it seems to be saying the same thing, but there's a subtle nuance that's very important to, to recognize. And so in these verses, we find the necessity of diversity specifically addressed to those who might feel inferior Because they don't have the gifts that seem most important. The showier, flashier gifts. You are not optional. You are absolutely necessary to the body of Christ. To those who would feel inferior. Because I can't do this or I don't have that. In the same way, a hand can only be a hand and a foot can only be a foot. The foot can't be the hand and vice versa. They both have to be what God designed them to be in the same way with two, the two senses of eyes and ears. The eyes can't hear and the ears can't see unless you're a daredevil. We have to have eyes that see and ears that hear. 
And that's how the normal human body works in a healthy, functioning way. Now, what Paul isn't trying to do is overinterpret the metaphor or wants us to do by determining which parts of the human body correlate to which role or gift is in the church. You know, the, well, the, the preacher or the singer must be the mouth and the cajon player must be the hands or the rhythm part of the body, whatever part of the body that is. That's not what we're supposed to try and figure out. Whatever the roles and the gifts are, every gift is necessary for the church to be healthy and functioning. In the same way you wake up tomorrow morning to go to school, to go to work, your leg, one of your legs decides, I'm just going to take the day off and stay in bed. You would have a problem. You need all parts of your body functioning in healthy, vibrant ways for you to function in healthy and vibrant ways. The entire body is hindered if just one part of it decides, I'm just going to quit working. Or I'm going to go rogue and do my own thing. You have a problem. So in a very real sense, everyone who is a part of the crossing should be right now asking themselves, if you are a born-again child of God, uh, you're alive in Christ, Christ is alive in you, asking yourselves, am I a healthy, functioning member of this local church? Am I contributing and serving with my spiritual gifts for the edification of the body and for the glory of Christ? And am I operating and serving within my particular area of giftedness and role? Like when I serve in this way, is the body benefiting? Is it leading me to worship and enjoy Christ more? I mentioned last week, how do you discover your spiritual gifts? And it's not going online and taking an online survey. It's not finding a BuzzFeed survey to see what your spiritual gifts are. Your spiritual gifts can be found by simply immersing yourself in the life of the Spirit, immersing yourself in the life of the body, and then looking around and beginning to serve. That's all you have to do. Just be a part and look around and start serving. And then the body will confirm. It's a good thing when you do that. The body is blessed. We benefit. Maybe that's not your gift. You know, I want it's a common thing for, for musical guys to get people, I want to sing on stage. Okay, let's talk about that. Because you might be the only one who thinks you want to sing on stage. All right? And we'll honestly tell you that. Like, it'd be better if you sing with everyone. Okay? And so they're you, you're not afraid to, to try things. They're not afraid to mess up. We love you. We're gracious. We're going to be kind to each other and help each other find the lane in which we should run. And I'm tempted to, to give a list of areas we need people to jump in and serve, but I really don't want the Spirit to lead you as, uh, I really want the Spirit to lead you as you're immersed in the life of the body. Like, I don't want to just give you a list and people start checking boxes because we're so good at that. Just jump in, immerse yourself in the life of the spirit, the life of the body, and begin looking for ways to help. Begin to see things that are being done that you can do, and maybe that person could do something else, or begin to see things that aren't being done that you could do, and start engaging. No matter how small or seemingly insignificant your role might be, it's incredibly important and needed and valuable in the life of a fully functioning, healthy body. There's a list of of all the spiritual gifts mentioned in the five passages of Scripture, and I meant to put these on the slide, but I forgot. Prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leadership, mercy, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, distinguishing of spirits, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, helps, apostolic ministry, evangelism, shepherding, speaking. These lists that were found in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4, these lists are not always defined. They're not always exhaustive. Uh, there are gifts even that, that are not mentioned that would be more particular to our context and more helpful. Gifts can also be natural given abilities that God gave you, gifted you when you were born that are now under the control of the Holy Spirit and are edifying to the body and glorifying to Christ. And all of them are needed. All 
of them are needed. Every single one are needed for the body to be as strong and healthy as possible. And this is God-ordained. Notice again verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. And so to say that an individual is not needed or a gift is not needed is as foolish as saying, God, you made a mistake when you designed the human body. You should have put the hand here, the arm there, the foot there, the intestines there. He's done a pretty good job. The more we dig into what we're made and how we're created and how God's designed us, the more amazed we are in science and the the sciences that study the human body. He's done an amazing job. And it's the same in the local church. It's the same with you serving in the local church. And no gift is too small or invisible. I could tell you many stories of people doing too small jobs in churches that I've been in who have been a blessing and valuable me- member to that ministry. I think one of the best illustrations comes from the ministry of Dwight Moody. <clears throat> in 1872, Moody, who was a, an evangelist in the Chicago area, traveled to England to meet with some other ministers for a time of encouragement and learning together. Just kind of wanted to rest and be fed. <clears throat> a local church in England, John Lessie, found out he was in town and begged him, come, please come preach in my pulpit this Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. So Moody's like, okay. He preached a Sunday morning, and it was absolute dead. Just apathy. No, spirit was not moving. No one was interested. Bored, blah, blah, blah. Not like you. Not like you at all. Like the exact opposite of you right now. That's how it was. And Moody's like, ugh, I'm going to go back Sunday night. But he goes back Sunday night, and he preaches, and it was, it was like this. Engaged. People on the edge of their seats. People were listening, attuned. And when he calls for people to believe in the gospel, tons of people stood up. And it was such a, a, a transition. Moody's like, something's going on here. Let me, maybe they didn't understand me. I'm talking about, you know, join me for potluck after the, the service. So he preaches the gospel again, calls for the same response, and he gets even more people. So he calls them to come meet with him and the pastor in another room. Even more people show up in that room. Finally, Moody says, look, everybody just come back tomorrow night. I don't know what's going on here. He travels on to Ireland. He receives a telegram from this pastor that says, Moody, you got to come back. Even more people showed up the next night. And over 10 days, 400 people came alive in Christ and joined that church. So Moody's a curious guy. He's like, i got to figure out what's going on. He begins to investigate. He's assuming somebody was praying. And there was a, a little young lady by the name of Mariana Adler who had heard of Moody's ministry in America and had been praying for that kind of outpouring of God's spirit and the gospel to happen in her local church. And she had been sick and had been in the hospital, but a sister comes home after this morning service and says, yeah, this guy from America, Dwight Moody, came and preached. And she's like, what? So she puts aside her meal. She spends the entire afternoon fasting and praying. And that one little person praying is what God used sovereignly to trigger a move of his spirit among those people. I'm not telling you that, that story to say you could do something like that and something like that could happen. That is true. But, but the illustration is every single member, every single gift matters. You never know how God will sovereignly choose to work through you to see his spirit move among his people. Don't think that you are inconsequential to the work of God. You matter. You matter. Now, the next session, section addresses a different group of people. Verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. 
and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now, to those in the local church of Corinth who might be arrogant about their gifting, I'm fine, I'm sufficient doing my own thing in my own way, I don't really need those people and those gifts, understand, this is for you, every member needs the rest of the members. There's an interdependence that exists in our bodies and in the body of Christ. I remember I, when I first got contacts, they were gas permeable, kind of hard contacts. If you've ever had those, you know that getting like a small piece of sand or grain is it's like stabbing you in the eye. And so I remember like rubbing my eye, trying to get out, and somebody said, rub your other eye. I'm like, no, this is the eye that hurts. No, 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 rub your other eye, and it will help with that eye. And it works. I don't know why. But every time I get something in my eye, I rub the other eye, not to make it worse, and this comes out of this eye. There's a connectivity in the human body that is mind-blowing, how things work and operate and depend upon each other. All of it wired together to accomplish this purpose of being you. Well, Paul uses parts of the body he describes as those that seem weaker and those that we think are less honorable in our unpresentable parts. Essentially, Paul is referring here to our sexual organs, parts of the body that we keep covered in modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. In the church of Corinth, the problem was you had spiritual gifting that was considered more spectacular and visible, generally being practiced by members of the church who had a higher social standing and class and were wealthier. And not being experienced among those who came from lower classes and, and they were not as visible or considered as important. Well, they're members of our church, but you know, they're kind of over there. They're the members that we don't want to say they're members of our church. Remember 1 Corinthians 11, this was a church so divided by classes that when they gathered for these love feasts, basically potluck meals, the rich would come first, get drunk, eat all the food, and leave the scraps for the poor. And this division was also seen in spiritual gifting. And Paul was saying to those arrogant, wealthy members with the showiest gifts, those members that seem to be weaker, they are indispensable. Notice Paul uses very intentional language. They seem to be weaker. He doesn't say they seem to be indispensable. He says they are indispensable. Those members who are, that we thought were less honorable, we should be showing them greater honor. There's no... There's no one who can just do their own thing apart from needing the rest of the body of Christ. Even the gifts that are not as showy or flashy or are, are somewhat invisible and aren't as seen. We should show them honor as well. We have moms and single ladies and a few dudes in our church who give up this time every Sunday to go back there and up there to spend about 45 minutes playing in the nursery, teaching lessons and loving on our kids. They have to prepare lessons on top of their already busy lives, and they, they have no idea who's going to show up every week, but they have to be ready. They have to corral and wrangle these little rambunctious boys, these little diva girls, love on them, wipe their nose, change their diapers. Also, we can sit here in the air conditioning and just be still and worship Jesus to the proclaimed word of God. They're not still right now. They're not cool right now. They are sweating and working hard back there, sharing the gospel and some of the beginning years of understanding the gospel to, to our kids, loving on them with the gospel. If you're part of that ministry team, teaching kids in nursery, 
teaching kids or the nursery, would you, would you be willing or even begrudgingly, would you stand right now? We just want to celebrate you and honor you and thank you. Praise God for your willingness to serve. And there's four more, maybe more back there that you can go love on when we're done and let them know how thankful we are for what they're doing. And there are many more people serving within our Sunday context in that way, invisibly, before we come, after we come, and even more in our missional communities. And, and, and we who have been given what you might call the show your gifts, who stand up here and, and do this, have to make sure everyone is honored, everyone is valued, everyone is appreciated, everyone is celebrated. Not because we're trying to build this culture of self-esteem, but because we're trying to build this culture of valuing every single member of the body, every member operating within their spiritual giftedness. Because the more everyone is operating like that, guess what? the healthier this whole thing becomes. And the more God is glorified, the more God is seen through us. And so we want to do a better job of that as a local church. These are gifts that people use and serve that that seem less important, but they're not. They're honorable as well. As we value them and treasure them and celebrate them, the body flourishes. In fact, Verse 25 and 26 paint a beautiful picture of the kind of interdependence God desires in His church. That, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I brought a hammer this morning. It's actually in Jennifer's bag. I meant to have it up here, but I forgot to grab it. And I need a volunteer to come up and you're going to Put your pinky right here on this table, and I'm just going to smash it as hard as I can with that hammer. Just one at a time. Oh, no. Nobody would do that, right? Because we know how the human body is made. The seemingly insignificant pinky, you could probably live without. I mean, was it for? It matters, but really, if it's injured or hurt, the entire body is going to suffer with that pinky. We've all stubbed our toe, and we've all had a paper cut, and we've all been hit in the head by something that makes you feel it throughout your entire body. This is why it makes total sense, because we understand how God has designed the human body. It makes total sense for us as his, the body of Christ to suffer together and grieve together as well as rejoice together. When Jennifer and I... Uh, we're, we're in our first year of marriage. We had no kids yet. Um, we were, uh, she had finished school. We were moving to Lafayette to go to graduate school. And we got this exciting opportunity to be in this new city, big city, fun city, to find a church together. We were so excited. We were visiting around. And we, on a Wednesday night, ended up at Calvary Baptist Church. The pastor's on vacation. The students were going to summer camp. One of the deacons was leading something, maybe a Bible study. There was no singing. There was a business meeting, I think. And there was no food. It was a miserable night at church, you would think. We left weeping, driving back to our apartment. Because we knew that's where the Spirit of God wanted us. How do we know that? Because as members were sharing the successes and the aches of life, 
all of them were celebrating together. All of them were grieving and praying for each other. And us being in a city with no family wanted family. And that was a family. Not by last name, but by the blood of Christ that drew them together, as we would discover. And in that church is where we fell in love with the local church and what the local church could be. When we have babies, when we get jobs, when we overcome sin, temptation, when we get promotions, when we graduate, graduate, we throw parties, we celebrate, we rejoice together, we take bold steps of faith, when we get well from being sick, whatever, whatever there is to celebrate in life, when one of us experiences that, we all join in the celebration, let's throw a party. Let's post that on this city. Instead of just, here's how you can pray for me, let's post where God has, has given you victory. God has given you hope and joy in life. And we do this every time we have a members meeting, sometimes in our MCs or DNAs. Where has God been gracious in your life? Gracious to help you walk through suffering, yes, but also gracious to walk you through success and victory. It's all His grace. And when one of us suffers, one of us is grieving, grieving or broken, Maybe running from the Lord, maybe being destroyed by sin, Satan, temptation, maybe suffering in the systems of injustice and oppression that dominate our culture and our world. We are seemingly helpless to change these things. We also come alongside our brothers and sisters and we weep and we grieve together. We suffer together. Like you can see, right? What an unstoppable force the church should be in our culture. To be this incredibly diverse body that loves Jesus this much, that loves each other this much, that when one of us celebrates, we all celebrate. And when one of us suffers, we all suffer together. It would absolutely turn our city upside down to be that body. It would revolutionize for many in our culture what it means to be the church. And it would show and demonstrate the power of God in ways that many in this city have never seen. Guys, we have everything we need to be that body. We are lacking in nothing. We have God, our Father in heaven, His Son, Jesus Christ, the living word, the written word, the power of the Holy Spirit, and we have each other. That's all we need. It's all we need. This interdependence is further illustrated in the final section, verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ, individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? Every member is necessary. Every member needs every member. And part of this is because of how God has distributed the gifts. No one member gets all the gifts, and no gift is given to every member. No one member gets all the gifts, and no gift is given to every member. Therefore, the full expression of the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, every member is essential for all the gifts to show up. We could be waiting for gifts to show up in our church that God has given you, is waiting on you to, to use and demonstrate to bring more health and vitality to this local church. What Paul has been implying becomes explicit in verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 
a statement, some of us who've been in church for a long time, is so shocking that we've become numb to how shocking it is. That we are the very body of Christ in this world. That is an amazing reality. Paul's been building on this. Chapter 3 and chapter 6, we are the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now he says you are the body of Christ. Where is God? In this world, in the church, in his people, in the body of Christ. We are not just a human organization. This is not just a club or something we do on Sundays to make us feel better about ourselves. The church is the presence of the Lord in the world today because we have the word of God and the spirit of God through us and in us is where God shows up. Now you have God's general revelation through his creation and nature where we see his power and, 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 and attributes of his glory that, that cause all people to see that there is a God and you have his common grace that all people experience. You don't have to be a child of God to, to, to be alive and enjoy aspects of life. But the special and specific revelation of of how you become one of his children through his son, Jesus Christ, through the written word of God and the gospel to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that only comes through the church. That only happens in the church. And so what is God's plan for the over 7,000 people groups and over 3.14 billion people who have yet to be reached with the gospel? God's plan is the church. It's us. There's no plan B. It's to send his people to those people so they can come alive in Christ. There's no other way for them to come alive in Christ. That's it. They have to hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. And this has always been God's plan, to be the body of Christ, to encapsulate Christ within his people. And one of the things that he's done to make that possible is give us these spiritual gifts so that we can function empowered by the Spirit in the same way that Christ functioned in his incarnate ministry. When he said in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me to do these works, now the Spirit of the Lord has come and dwelt his people to do the works of Christ. The works that he would be doing were he here in his incarnational ministry. Well, guys, he is here in us. He is here in us. Now, what's unique about these gifts that were listed in verse 28, this second listing of some examples of these kinds of gifts. What's unique is how they're listed, and there's some debate about what Paul is intending. Is he ranking the gifts in terms of importance, or is he ranking them in terms of how a church is established? First, you have an apostle come, like Paul, to Corinth. Um, we might call a missionary or church planter. Then they, they get the work started. Then prophets and teachers come, kind of like pastors who stay and keep the work going. And then all the other gifts are added as the church develops. Well, Whatever Paul's intention, and we'll see more clarity on this in chapter 14, what everyone is in agreement on is the intentionality of Paul to put tongues last. He did that here, and he did that earlier in chapter 12. Because in this church, that was the gift. While it could be beneficial, it was being blown out of proportion in terms of significance and had developed in Corinth what I described earlier, a church with two classes of Christians, those who had the gift and those who didn't. It was destroying and dividing the church from within. Now, Paul is not dismissing tongues. He would say in chapter 14 himself, he had spoken in tongues more than anyone and desired that they would too, either in private when it's just you and God as a time of edification and worship or in public, but only if there's an interpretation. Isn't this where the Baptist church is supposed to say, but those gifts aren't in function anymore? Those kind of died out in the first century? Has Paul said that? 
Does Paul? Oh, he says in chapter 13, where tongues will cease. Okay, we'll get there next week, and we'll deal with that. More teasers. However that gift is experienced by a local church, either in private or in public with an interpretation, or in even helping to translate the gospel across language barriers. A lot of you have heard the story Jeff Vanderstilt has told. Uh, I remember him sharing that with, with uh, a group of us at Soma School in, in 2014 in, in Tacoma. He's, he's in Mexico preaching in an outdoor pavilion with an interpreter. Uh, uh, the wind begins to blow in the middle of his sermon. The interpreter sits down. Why are you sitting down? I'm still preaching. Because you're speaking their language. Jeff, who knew no Spanish. And God still does that. I've been in other contexts where I've prayed for God to give me that gift. Because if you've been in those contexts, you know how hard it is to speak to people through a translator. If I could just speak your language. One guy I was talking to, you know, trying to build a relationship with this interpreter. So he would say what I want him to say. And he's like, that's okay. You preach your sermon. I'll preach my sermon. That's not what I want you to do. God hasn't seen fit for me to have that gift yet in, in, that, in that kind of way. Even though it's seemingly more spectacular, Paul is saying as he ranks it last, it's just one of the many gifts and should not be elevated to a place of importance above the other gifts. And the same could be true of miracles and healings, the seemingly more spectacular gifts. And then we see these rhetorical questions in verse 29 through 30, all assuming the answer is no. It's God... Um, uh, uh, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers. No, 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 no. God doesn't give a gift to everyone, and no one person has all the gift, which means, again, everyone matters. Every gift matters. So take it all together. The church is the body of Christ, one body, many members, all gifted, necessary for the body to be healthy and thriving. The gifts, as we saw earlier in the chapter and here in verse 28, are given By God, as our triune God chooses, all gifts are needed. No one gift is better or truly more important than any other gift. We need them all, which makes what he says in verse 31 a little odd. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Why earnestly desire something that God ultimately is sovereign over determining who gets what? And what does he mean by higher gifts if all gifts matter and no gift is more important than other gifts? Now, some have tried to help Paul out by saying that Paul is making an indicative statement about them. You, Corinthians, you're always looking after and searching for the higher gifts. Only problem of that is chapter 14, where Paul gives the same exact command, imperative command. Do this. Earnestly seek these gifts in verse 1 and verse 39. Greater gifts. Now, what Paul means by that will become more clear later as well. You can certainly, and I would encourage you, read ahead, study ahead, but it's basically a gift that more clearly manifests the Holy Spirit in a way that is loving and edifying to the church without chaos and confusion. So even if unbelievers are in our gathering, they see the manifestation of that gift and they are drawn to belief in God, they're not repulsed from God in unbelief because it's so clearly God. But before Paul digs into that, he's got to walk us through a more excellent way of love in chapter 13. It's got to flavor the life of the church even more than the gifts flavoring the life of the church. But we're still left with this command, earnestly desire these gifts. And as a church with leaders who do not believe the Bible teaches cessationism, we do not believe the Bible teaches that these gifts phased out in the first century. Some of these gifts have ceased their functioning. We are praying and discussing together about what that needs to look like for the crossing church. 
to be a people who earnestly desire these gifts to be made manifest in our lives and church in a way that is flavored by love and done in order and decency, as the last verse of chapter 14 says. There will be more teaching and more discussion about this moving forward, but know that we are, we are simply wanting to enjoy and operate in all that God has for us, not in bondage to the fears about what either some of us ex- did not experience growing up, so this is kind of all new and strange, or what some of us did experience growing up when these gifts have been abused in local churches, but also not creating a Wild West environment where anything goes. Because ultimately, we can earnestly desire these gifts, but God is sovereign and in charge over who receives what and gives us exactly what we need in the way we need it to be a vibrant, healthy church, taking the gospel to anyone and everyone in our city and beyond. In his book, Showing the Spirit, D.A. Carson, which is an examination of these three chapters, he's refuting the doctrine of those who say that every Christian should have a post-conversion experience of being baptized in the Spirit as evidenced by speaking in tongues. He's refuting that, and he says this, Although I think it's extremely dangerous to pursue a second blessing attested by tongues, I think it is no less dangerous not to pant after God at all and to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity that is kosher but complacent, orthodox but ossified, sound but soundly asleep. We do not want to be that church. We earnestly desire the gifts because of what the gifts are. The manifestation of God, His power, His presence in tangible ways. So so think about it. We desire the gifts not because we want the gift to say, look at me, what I can do, but because we want God. We desire the gifts because we desire Him the gift is His presence, His Spirit working and being experienced by His people. We want Him more than we want the gifts. And so when we earnestly desire Him is when His Spirit comes and bestows upon us whatever we need to accomplish His work. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You alone know exactly how this needs to be applied to every heart in this room. And you alone have the power and ability to effectively do that. So I ask you to do that now. Continue what you've already begun as we began this worship gathering. If salvation is needed, if courage and faith is needed, if comfort is needed, may your spirit and your word and your people apply that to whoever is here that needs that this morning. For the glory of Christ alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.